0: Section 42 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane. And J. Kemp. Fourth book, The World as Will, section sixty eight, part two. We find, however, that which we have called the denial of the will to live more fully developed, more variously expressed, and more vividly represented in the ancient Sanskrit writings than could be the case in the Christian Church and the Western world that this important ethical view of life could here attain to a fuller development and a more distinct expression is perhaps principally to be ascribed to the fact that it was not confined by an element quite foreign to it as christianity is by the jewish theology to which its sublime author had necessarily to adopt and accommodate it partly consciously partly it may be unconsciously thus christianity is made up of two very different constituent parts and i should like to call the purely ethical part especially and indeed exclusively christian and distinguish it from the jewish dogmatism with which it is combined if as has often been feared and especially at the present time that excellent and salutary religion should altogether decline i should look for the reason of this simply in the fact that it does not consist of one single element but of two originally different elements which have only been combined through the accident of history in such a case dissolution had to follow through the separation of these elements Arising from their different relationship to and reaction against the progressive spirit of the age. But even after this dissolution, the purely ethical part must always remain uninjured because it is indestructible. Our knowledge of Hindu literature is still very imperfect, yet as we find their ethical teaching variously and powerfully expressed In the Vedas, Puranas, poems, myths, legends of their saints, maxims, and precepts, we see that it inculcates love of our neighbor with complete renunciation of self love. Love generally not confined to mankind, but including all living creatures. Benevolence, even to the giving away of the hard won wages of daily toil unlimited patience towards all who injure us the requital of all wickedness however base with goodness and love voluntary and glad endurance of all ignominy abstinence from all animal food perfect chastity and renunciation of all sensual pleasure for him who strives after true holiness THE SURRENDER OF ALL POSSESSIONS, THE FORSAKING OF EVERY DWELLING-PLACE AND OF ALL RELATIVES, DEEP, UNBROKEN SOLITUDE, SPENT IN SILENT CONTEMPLATION, WITH VOLUNTARY PENANCE, AND TERRIBLE, SLOW SELF-TORTURE FOR THE ABSOLUTE MORTIFICATION OF THE WILL, TORTURE WHICH EXTENDS TO VOLUNTARY DEATH BY STARVATION, OR BY MEN GIVING THEMSELVES UP TO CROCODILES, Or flinging themselves over the sacred precipice in the himalayas or being buried alive or finally by flinging themselves under the wheels of the huge car of an idol drawn along amid the singing shouting and dancing of beaderes and even yet these precepts whose origin reaches back more than four thousand years are carried out in practice in some cases even to the utmost extreme and this notwithstanding the fact that the hindu nation has been broken up into so many parts a religion which demands the greatest sacrifices and which has yet remained so long in practice in a nation that embraces so many millions of persons cannot be an arbitrarily invented superstition but must have its foundation in the nature of man but besides this if we read the life of a christian penitent or saint and also that of a hindu saint we cannot sufficiently wonder at the harmony we find between them in the case of such radically different dogmas customs and circumstances the inward life and effort of both is the same and the same harmony prevails in the maxims prescribed for both of them for example Towler speaks of the absolute poverty which one ought to seek and which consists in giving away and divesting oneself completely of everything from which one might draw comfort or worldly pleasure clearly because all this constantly affords new nourishment to the will which it is intended to destroy entirely and as an indian counterpart of this we find in the precepts of pho that the saniasi who ought to be without a dwelling and entirely without property is further finally enjoined not to lay himself down often under the same tree lest he should acquire a preference or inclination for it above other trees the christian mystic and the teacher of the vedanta philosophy agree in this respect also they both regard all outward works and religious exercises as superfluous for him who has attained to perfection so much agreement in the case of such different ages and nations is a practical proof that what is expressed here is not as optimistic dullness likes to assert an eccentricity and perversity of the mind but an essential side of human nature which only appears so rarely because of its excellence i have now indicated the sources from which there may be obtained a direct knowledge drawn from life itself of the phenomena in which the denial of the will to live exhibits itself in some respects this is the most important point of our whole work yet i have only explained it quite generally for it is better to refer to those who speak from direct experience than to increase the size of this book unduly by weak repetitions of what is said by them i only wish to add a little to the general indication of the nature of this state we saw above that the wicked man by the vehemence of his volition suffers constant consuming inward pain and finally if all objects of volition are exhausted quenches the fiery thirst of his self-will by the sight of the suffering of others he on the contrary who has attained to the denial of the will to live however poor Joyless and full of privation his condition may appear when looked at externally, is yet filled with inward joy and the true peace of heaven. It is not the restless strain of life, the jubilant delight which has keen suffering as its preceding or succeeding condition, in the experience of the man who loves life, but it is a peace that cannot be shaken, a deep rest and inward serenity, a state which we cannot behold without the greatest longing when it is brought before our eyes or our imagination, because we at once recognize it as that which alone is right, infinitely surpassing everything else, upon which our better self cries within us the great sapere aude then we feel that every gratification of our wishes won from the world is merely like the alms which the beggar receives from life to-day that he may hunger again on the morrow resignation on the contrary is like an inherited estate it frees the owner forever from all care it will be remembered from the third book that the aesthetic pleasure in the beautiful consists in great measure in the fact that in entering the state of pure contemplation we are lifted for the moment above all willing i e all wishes and cares we become as it were freed from ourselves we are no longer the individual whose knowledge is subordinated to the service of its constant willing the correlative of the particular thing to which objects are motives but the eternal subject of knowing purified from will the correlative of the platonic idea and we know that these moments in which delivered from the ardent strain of will we seem to rise out of the heavy atmosphere of earth are the happiest which we experience from this we can understand how blessed the life of a man must be whose will is silenced not merely for a moment as in the enjoyment of the beautiful but for ever indeed altogether extinguished Except as regards the last glimmering spark that retains the body in life, and will be extinguished with its death. Such a man who, after many bitter struggles with his own nature, has finally conquered entirely, continues to exist only as a pure, knowing being, the undimmed mirror of the world. Nothing can trouble him more nothing can move him for he has cut all the thousand cords of will which hold us bound to the world and as desire fear envy anger drag us hither and thither in constant pain he now looks back smiling and at rest on the delusions of this world which once were able to move and agonize his spirit also, but which now stand before him as utterly indifferent to him, as the chess-men when the game is ended, or as, in the morning, the cast-off masquerading dress which worried and disquieted us in a night in Carnival. Life and its forms now pass before him as a fleeting illusion, As a light morning dream before half-waking eyes, the real world already shining through it so that it can no longer deceive. And like this morning dream, they finally vanish altogether without any violent transition. From this we can understand the meaning of Madame Guillon when towards the end of her autobiography she often expresses herself thus everything is alike to me i cannot will anything more often i know not whether i exist or not in order to express how after the extinction of the will the death of the body which is indeed only the manifestation of the will and therefore loses all significance when the will is abolished can no longer have any bitterness but is very welcome i may be allowed to quote the words of that holy penitent although they are not very elegantly turned midi de la gloire jour où il n'y a plus de nuit vie qui ne craint plus l'amour dans l'amour même parce que l'amour a vaincu l'amour et que celui qui a souffert la première mort ne goûtera plus la seconde mort. Vie de madame de guion volume two page thirteen we must not however suppose that when by means of the knowledge which acts as a quieter of will the denial of the will to live has once appeared it never wavers or vacillates and that we can rest upon it as on an assured possession rather it must ever anew be attained by a constant battle for since the body is the will itself only in the form of objectivity or as manifestation in the world as idea so long as the body lives the whole will to live exists potentially and constantly strives to become actual and to burn again with all its ardour therefore that peace and blessedness in the life of holy men which we have described is only found as the flower which proceeds from the constant victory over the will and the ground in which it grows is the constant battle with the will to live for no one can have lasting peace upon earth we therefore see the histories of the inner life of saints full of spiritual conflicts temptations and absence of grace i e the kind of knowledge which makes all motives ineffectual and as an universal quieter silences all volition gives the deepest peace and opens the door of freedom therefore also we see those who have once attained to the denial of the will to live strive with all their might to keep upon this path by enforced renunciation of every kind by penance and severity of life and by selecting whatever is disagreeable to them all in order to suppress the will which is constantly springing up anew hence Finally, because they already know the value of salvation, their anxious carefulness to retain the hard-won blessing, their scruples of conscience about every innocent pleasure or about every little excitement of their vanity, which here also dies last, the most immovable, the most active, and the most foolish of all the inclinations of man. By the term asceticism, which I have used so often, I mean in its narrower sense this intentional breaking of the will by the refusal of what is agreeable, and the selection of what is disagreeable, the voluntarily chosen life of penance and self-chastisement for the continual mortification of the will we see this practiced by him who has attained to the denial of the will in order to enable him to persist in it but suffering in general as it is inflicted by fate is a second way plus, of attaining to that denial indeed we may assume that most men only attain to it in this way and that it is the suffering which is personally experienced, not that which is merely known, which most frequently produces complete resignation, often only at the approach of death. For only in the case of a few is the mere knowledge which, seeing through the Principium Individuationis, first produces perfect goodness of disposition and universal love of humanity, and finally enables them to regard all the suffering of the world as their own. Only in the case of a few, I say, is this knowledge sufficient to bring about the denial of the will even with him who approaches this point it is almost invariably the case that the tolerable condition of his own body the flattery of the moment the delusion of hope and the satisfaction of the will which is ever presenting itself anew i e lust is a constant hindrance to the denial of the will and a constant temptation to the renewed assertion of it therefore in this respect all these illusions have been personified as the devil thus in most cases the will must be broken by great personal suffering before its self-conquest appears then we see the man who has passed through all the increasing degrees of affliction with the most vehement resistance and is finally brought to the verge of despair suddenly retire into himself know himself and the world change his whole nature rise above himself and all suffering as if purified and sanctified by it in inviolable peace blessedness, and sublimity, willingly renounce everything he previously desired with all his might, and joyfully embrace death. It is the refined silver of the denial of the will to live that suddenly comes forth from the purifying flame of suffering. It is salvation. Sometimes we see even those who were very wicked, purified to this degree, By great grief they have become new beings and are completely changed therefore their former misdeeds trouble their consciences no more yet they willingly atone for them by death and gladly see the end of the manifestation of that will which is now foreign to them and abhorred by them the great goethe Has given us a distinct and visible representation of this denial of the will, brought about by great misfortunes and despair of all deliverance, in his immortal masterpiece Faust, in the story of the sufferings of Gretchen. I know no parallel to this in poetry. It is a perfect example of the second path that leads to the denial of the will, not as the first through the mere knowledge of the sufferings of a whole world which one has voluntarily acquired but through excessive suffering experienced in one's own person many tragedies certainly end by conducting their strong-willed heroes to the point of entire resignation and then generally the will to live and its manifestation end together But no representation that is known to me brings what is essential to that change so distinctly before us, free from all that is extraneous, as the part of Faust I have referred to. In actual life we see that those unfortunate persons who have to drink to the dregs the greatest cup of suffering, since when all hope is taken from them they have to face with full consciousness a shameful violent and often painful death on the scaffold are very frequently changed in this way we must not indeed assume that there is so great a difference between their character and that of most men as their fate would seem to indicate but must attribute the latter for the most part to circumstances yet they are guilty, and to a considerable degree, bad. We see, however, many of them, when they have entirely lost hope, changed in the way referred to. They now show actual goodness and purity of disposition, true abhorrence of doing any act in the least degree bad or unkind. They forgive their enemies, even if it is through them that they innocently suffer, and not with words merely, and a sort of hypocritical fear of the judges of the lower world, but in reality, and with inward earnestness, and no desire for revenge. Indeed, their sufferings and death at last becomes dear to them, for the denial of the will to live has appeared they often decline the deliverance when it is offered and die gladly peacefully and happily to them the last secret of life has revealed itself in their excessive pain the secret that misery and wickedness sorrow and hate the sufferer and the inflictor of suffering however different they may appear to the knowledge which follows the principle of sufficient reason, are in themselves one, the manifestation of that one will to live which objectifies its conflict with itself by means of the Principium Individuationis. They have learned to know both sides in full measure, the badness and the misery and since at last they see the identity of the two they reject them both at once they deny the will to live in what myths and dogmas they account to their reason for this intuitive and direct knowledge and for their own change is as has been said a matter of no importance Matthias Claudius must without doubt have witnessed a change of mind of this description when he wrote the remarkable essay in the wandsbecker Böten, Part One, page 115, with the title Bekehrungsgeschichte des Name-Omitted, History of the Conversion of, Name-Omitted, which concludes thus man's way of thinking may pass from one point of the periphery to the opposite point and again back to the former point if circumstances mark out for him the path and these changes in a man are really nothing great or interesting but that remarkable catholic transcendental change in which the whole circle is irreparably broken up and all the laws of psychology become vain and empty when the coat is stripped from the shoulders or at least turned outside in and as it were scales fall from a man's eyes is such that every one who has breath in his nostrils forsakes father and mother if he can hear or experience something certain about it the approach of death and hopelessness are in other respects not absolutely necessary for such a purification through suffering even without them the knowledge of the contradiction of the will to live with itself can through great misfortune and pain force an entrance and the vanity of all striving become recognized hence it has often happened that men who have led a very restless life in the full strain of the passions kings heroes and adventurers suddenly change betake themselves to resignation and penance become hermits or monks to this class belong all true accounts of conversions for example that of raymond lully who had long wooed a fair lady and was at last admitted to her chamber anticipating the fulfilment of all his wishes when she opening her bodice showed him her bosom frightfully eaten with cancer from that moment as if he had looked into hell he was changed He forsook the court of the king of Majorca and went into the desert to do penance. This conversion is very like that of the abbe Rance which I have briefly related in the forty eighth chapter of the supplement. If we consider how in both cases the transition from the pleasure to the horror of life was the occasion of it, this throws some light upon the remarkable fact that it is among the French the most cheerful gay sensuous and frivolous nation in europe that by far the strictest of all monastic orders the trappists arose was re-established by rencay after its fall and has maintained itself to the present day in all its purity and strictness in spite of revolutions church reformations and encroachments of infidelity but a knowledge such as that referred to above of the nature of this existence may leave us again along with the occasion of it and the will to live and with it the previous character may reappear thus we see that the passionate benvenuto cellini was changed in this way once when he was in prison and again when very ill but when the suffering passed over he fell back again into his old state in general the denial of the will to live by no means proceeds from suffering with the necessity of an effect from its cause but the will remains free for this is indeed the one point at which its freedom appears directly in the phenomenon hence the astonishment which asmus expresses so strongly at the transcendental change in the case of every suffering it is always possible to conceive a will which exceeds it in intensity and is therefore unconquered by it thus plato speaks in the phaedon of men who up to the moment of their execution feast drink and indulge in sensuous pleasure asserting life Even to the death. Shakespeare shows us in Cardinal Beaufort the fearful end of a profligate who dies full of despair for no suffering or death can break his will, which is vehement to the extreme of wickedness. The more intense the will is, the more glaring is the conflict of its manifestation, and thus the greater is the suffering. A world which was the manifestation of a far more intense will to live than this world manifests would produce so much the greater suffering, would thus be a hell. All suffering, since it is a mortification and a call to resignation, has potentially a sanctifying power this is the explanation of the fact that every great misfortune or deep pain inspires a certain awe but the sufferer only really becomes an object of reverence when surveying the course of his life as a chain of sorrows or mourning some great and incurable misfortune HE DOES NOT REALLY LOOK AT THE SPECIAL COMBINATION OF CIRCUMSTANCES WHICH HAS PLUNGED HIS OWN LIFE INTO SUFFERING, NOR STOPS AT THE SINGLE GREAT MISFORTUNE THAT HAS BEFALLEN HIM, FOR IN SO DOING HIS KNOWLEDGE STILL FOLLOWS THE PRINCIPLE OF SUFFICIENT REASON AND CLINGS TO THE PARTICULAR PHENOMENON. HE STILL WILLS LIFE ONLY NOT UNDER THE CONDITIONS WHICH HAVE HAPPENED TO HIM but only then i say he is truly worthy of reverence when he raises his glance from the particular to the universal when he regards his suffering as merely an example of the whole and for him since in a moral regard he partakes of genius one case stands for a thousand so that the whole of life conceived as essentially suffering brings him to resignation therefore it inspires reverence when in goethe's torcato tasso the princess speaks of how her own life and that of her relations has always been sad and joyless and yet regards the matter from an entirely universal point of view a very noble character we always imagine with a certain trace of quiet sadness which is anything but a constant fretfulness at daily annoyances this would be an ignoble trait and lead us to fear a bad disposition but is a consciousness derived from knowledge of the vanity of all possessions of the suffering of all life not merely of his own but such knowledge may primarily be awakened by the personal experience of suffering especially some one great sorrow as a single unfulfilled wish brought petrarch to that state of resigned sadness concerning the whole of life which appeals to us so pathetically in his works for the daphne he pursued had to flee from his hands in order to leave him instead of herself the immortal laurel when through some such great and irrevocable denial of fate the will is to some extent broken almost nothing else is desired and the character shows itself mild just noble and resigned when finally grief has no definite object but extends itself over the whole of life then it is to a certain extent a going into itself, a withdrawal, a gradual disappearance of the will, whose visible manifestation, the body, it imperceptibly but surely undermines, so that a man feels a certain loosening of his bonds, a mild foretaste of that death which promises to be the abolition at once of the body and of the will therefore a secret pleasure accompanies this grief and it is this as i believe which the most melancholy of all nations has called the joy of grief but here also lies the danger of sentimentality both in life itself and in the representation of it in poetry when a man is always mourning and lamenting without courageously rising to resignation in this way we lose both earth and heaven and retain merely a watery sentimentality only if suffering assumes the form of pure knowledge and this acting as a quieter of the will brings about resignation is it worthy of reverence in this regard however we feel a certain respect at the sight of every great sufferer which is akin to the feeling excited by virtue and nobility of character and also seems like a reproach of our own happy condition we cannot help regarding every sorrow both our own and those of others as at least a potential advance towards virtue and holiness and on the contrary pleasures and worldly satisfactions as a retrogression from them this goes so far that every man who endures a great bodily or mental suffering indeed every one who merely performs some physical labor which demands the greatest exertion in the sweat of his brow and with evident exhaustion yet with patience and without murmuring Every such man, I say, if we consider him with close attention, appears to us like a sick man who tries a painful cure, and who willingly and even with satisfaction endures the suffering it causes him, because he knows that the more he suffers, the more the cause of his disease is affected, and that therefore the present suffering is the measure of his cure according to what has been said the denial of the will to live which is just what is called absolute entire resignation or holiness always proceeds from that quieter of the will which the knowledge of its inner conflict and essential vanity expressing themselves in the suffering of all living things Becomes the difference, which we have represented as two paths, consists in whether that knowledge is called up by suffering, which is merely and purely known, and is freely appropriated by means of the penetration of the principium individuationis, or by suffering which is directly felt by a man himself. True salvation deliverance from life and suffering cannot even be imagined without complete denial of the will till then every one is simply this will itself whose manifestation is an ephemeral existence a constantly vain and empty striving and the world full of suffering we have represented to which all irrevocably and in like manner belong for we found above that life is always assured to the will to live and its one real form is the present from which they can never escape since birth and death reign in the phenomenal world the indian mythus expresses this by saying they are born again the great ethical difference of character means this that the bad man, is infinitely far from the attainment of the knowledge from which the denial of the will proceeds, and therefore he is in truth actually exposed to all the miseries which appear in life as possible. For even the present fortunate condition of his personality is merely a phenomenon produced by the Principium Individuationis, and a delusion of maya the happy dream of a beggar the sufferings which in the vehemence and ardour of his will he inflicts upon others are the measure of the suffering the experience of which in his own person cannot break his will and plainly lead it to the denial of itself all true and pure love on the other hand and even all free justice proceed from the penetration of the Principium Individuationis, which, if it appears with its full power, results in perfect sanctification and salvation, the phenomenon of which is the state of resignation described above, the unbroken peace which accompanies it, and the greatest delight in death. End of Fourth Book, The World as Will, Section 68, Part 2